So these are the, the paramis, are the, the qualities that uh, were said to have been perfected by the Buddha and that is developing in all of us, uh, all different times. But um, before getting into that too much, I thought I'd just talk a little bit about um, being on retreat too. And um, since many of you are from IMC and I don't teach there that often, I'll also just tell you a little bit about myself so you have a sense of where I'm coming from and my uh, background. So I started uh, practice uh, fairly young. Uh, I started actually reading Dharma books when I was a young teenager, sort of 12, 13, and read a lot, lot, lot of books, and then finally uh, studied a lot, uh, started studying Buddhism in college, and then realized, you know, I, I actually want to get it here. Like, I don't want to just get it here. I don't want to learn about it and be able to write about it. Like, these people are talking about something that, if it's real, is like real here. So. Then I knew that I needed to practice. So fortunately there was a practice center near where I was in college, uh, urban center, kind of like uh, IMC, uh, which is in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and started practicing there and then just immediately fell in love with the practice and started taking classes, then did weekend retreat, then came on a retreat like this one uh, that you're on now at uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Uh, and that was about uh, 24 years ago. And uh, since then, just have, have uh, spent a lot of my time in my adult life in practice, like what you're doing now. So when I finished college, I spent basically uh, three or four years um, just doing practice in retreat centers and monasteries uh, in the U.S., in Sri Lanka, India. Then I came back and started living a little bit more of a regular life. Uh, but continued to keep going back to retreat, probably between three weeks, one month, occasionally three months uh, per year. So I definitely had a strong meditation habit that I kept uh, feeding like this. So one thing to say is those of you who have been on retreat before, it both can be like a blessing and a curse, as you may know. So uh, it's good because you have some sense of the schedule and maybe the rhythm of retreat and things like that. One of the challenges can be that then you can carry around the past memories of what happened on other retreats. Uh, sometimes we call them like the corpses of your past retreats get dragged to the center, you know, uh, ripe for a comparing mind. So comparing like, well, the last retreat I was more concentrated or you know, uh, this retreat I seem to, my mind is quieter or, you know, good, bad, depending on the moment, right, back and forth, back and forth. So my recommendation with that is just to put it all down. Take your judgments about all of this with a big grain of salt. So now as I approach retreat, uh, I actually am going in um, two weeks on retreat uh, myself um, for a two-week period. I try and approach as much as possible just with not knowing mind. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to learn. I trust very much that I will learn something, that something will be developing but it's really beyond me what that is. And that's actually a good thing, because if everything that I was able to perceive mapped out the entire spiritual path, that would be limiting, if you know what I mean. So, you know, the, the way the Dharma unfolds, the way that your own experience unfolds, uh, there's a mystery to it. So I can't tell you what it's gonna be or what you're gonna learn, you definitely can't tell you what you're going to learn. <laughs> you 
you'll certainly have your ideas about it, but I'm just saying, like, try to put it down. Try to take it with a grain of salt and relax into seeing what actually emerges. So the analogy that comes to me is more like um, being a, a diver. So if anyone does scuba diving and you put, to put on their wetsuit and put on this oxygen tank, and then there's a certain point at which you have to fall backwards off of this boat into the water. You know? And for me, that's what entering into a period of retreat is like. And the truth is that's what life is like too. But particularly we'll say about being in retreat. It's just like, oh, just falling into it, surrendering. And then as you sink down, you get to see all of this amazing life that otherwise is not revealed to you by you know, our usual busyness and uh, the usual kind of static friction in our mind. So relatedly then, this wetsuit is actually the uh, thing that helps us to uh, be able to go down. The wetsuit, the oxygen tank, etc. And you could say that that's actually like uh, the noble silence and the solitude uh, that we have as one of the conditions of being on the retreat together. And for those who have not uh, experienced being on retreat, it can seem very strange, certainly. You know, sometimes it seems like, oh, I'm actually ignoring people around me, and it feels like a negative uh, way of interacting. Like, this doesn't feel like it's developing a loving heart. It feels like it's developing a self-absorbed, separate uh, sense. So you could imagine it as, like, um, supporting each other in the endeavor to pay attention to what's actually happening in our own mind-body system. And actually freeing yourself from having to constantly create and project a sense of self, which we're doing all the time in our regular life, in small ways, in large ways, introducing ourselves, saying hello to people, trying to impress people, trying to seem happy, trying to make people like you, avoiding people. You know, there's a whole lot of energy that goes into creation and managing a sense of self. So hopefully here on retreat we can kind of put some of that down and then the rest of it actually just see it with some sense of affection and humor and lightness of how we're machinating this much of the time. Or another analogy sometimes used is like we're supporting each other and doing this work with uh, uh, each other, but we can o- each only do our own practice. So in this way, it's like if we're in a library together, and each person is doing their own reading, their own studying. Uh, you know, you can't read the book for that person. Like they have to learn themselves. They have to write their own thing about it. Uh, but because you're sitting there doing your own work next to each other, and actually not bugging each other or playing loud music or shooting spitballs at them, right? Then each of you is able to actually learn. Uh, and you're supporting each other in that way. So similarly, as we sit here in our little rafts, or chair rafts, you know, there, uh, we're all supporting each other in doing this practice, which would be much harder to do if it was just you alone deciding to come to Hidden Villa and spend a week doing this. So what is it that we see then when we come on retreat? What is it that's there to see? You know, this is really like a a beautiful lab for being able to see clearly into the Dharma, uh, which, as I have mentioned in the uh, taking refuges part in the beginning, is really seeing the truth of the way things are. So it's actually seeing into the truth. And then seeing into the way that our mind actually complicates and obscures this. 
So see what it is that actually divides us and separates us from the truth of the way things are. So if you thought you would escape a day without me reading this quote from this pamphlet, you were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So here again we have Josephine Duvenek, the founder of Hidden Villa. I love this, right? Becoming aware of the relationship of all living things to other living things is the key to knowing ourselves. It is a basis for understanding the intricate web of life. So, you know, this is so, such dharma that she's uh, speaking here. And this is further evidence that what the Buddha is teaching is actually the truth of the way things are. And basically anyone who can stop and pay attention and tune into this is able to realize this to different extents. And this cuts across different traditions, this cuts across different cultures, this cuts across different times. So, for example, uh, you may have heard this quote, Hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred can only cease by love. This is a universal law. So you may have heard this quote from the Buddha. This is true, 2600 years ago, northern India. You may have heard this quote from Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, that was maybe 1940s, uh, different parts of India. You may have heard this quote from Martin Luther King Jr., 1960s, United States. So all of them saying the same thing. It might be a universal law. Right? It's actually something that's been said all these different times by these different people. So what the Buddha is teaching and what there is for us to see are these different dimensions of the truth of the way things are these universal laws. And basically the more that we understand this, the more that we're able to live in alignment with this, then the happier we are, the less suffering that we have in our own life, and the less suffering we cause for others. So the more harmonious a life that we're able to lead. Now this does not mean that everything will quote-unquote go your way, which means that uh, It's not that suddenly the weather will do your bidding or everyone will follow your scripts or your body will always run perfectly. But because you are actually connected to and aligned with the truth of the way things are, you will be much more at peace with all of this. So one particular aspect of this that I want to uh, talk about this afternoon is Uh, around the paramis, so these uh, particular characteristics, qualities of uh, sila, which is integrity or ethical conduct, uh, and also of truthfulness. And these are actually two separate ones in this list of ten paramis. So there's this uh, category of stories um, in the Buddhist tradition called the Jataka tales, And they're stories of the Buddha's uh, past lives as he was developing all of these different perfections and different qualities. Uh, And in each of these, he's he's taken a different birth. And um, some of them are people births and some of them are animal births. So I was very much reminded of that being here on the farm. And in each of these stories, he uh, has some challenge and then he... um, kind of deals with that challenge, and through that challenge he develops this particular quality, or he actually uh, demonstrates a particular quality. So it's things like um, the brave parrot. So, you know, he's like a parrot, and 
he has to save all these other parrots, you know. Or he's like a, um, the compassionate deer king. So he's like the head of all the deer and he has a lot of compassion. And, you know, we'll tell maybe some of these stories as we go, go along like this. Right? So notably, um, this, this quality of ethical conduct uh, or of integrity and of truthfulness um, are both articulated as uh, important enough to be identified, sort of spotlighted on their own. So first we'll look at the dimension of the sila, ethical conduct or integrity. And when we started the retreat, we took these precepts together, right, about how we would uh, aspire to live together and to treat each other on the retreat. And as I mentioned, these are both an articulation of what it is to actually know this truth of the interconnectedness, I will not read that again, but you know, basically that quote, right? To actually live from that, uh, that interconnection, we will not uh, then harm each other in these ways or steal from each other or uh, abuse each other. And also it's the training uh, towards that end, towards living from that understanding. So integrity itself uh, means wholeness. So what we're learning and developing towards is actually a connection to this sense of wholeness. So we're training ourselves to move beyond our sense of false fragmentation with which we often move around in the world. We have almost this um, addiction, you could say, to this uh, belief in a separate self. And here's me and here's everyone else and I've got to get what I need, and others are thus obstacles to me being able to do that. And thus begins a world of domination, uh, a world of conflict, uh, a world of subjugation, and a world in which we perceive self and other to be permanent. As we tune in with mindfulness to our experience, to in fact everything that we can perceive to be ourselves in our experience, we notice more and more that there is actually nothing that is demonstrating this permanence. So there's nothing in the dimension of the mind. All of the thoughts are coming and going. Images are coming and going. There's nothing in the area of the body. All of the body sensations are actually constantly changing and moving. There's nothing in the area of sound that's permanent. Here it's one sound, then it's another sound. Sight is changing constantly. Smell, taste, touch, it's all changing. And because of this uh, constant ephemerality of things, it points us to actually a non-solidity. So counter to our usual way of relating as, here's me and here's the others that I need to fight with, uh, machinate around, uh, protect myself from, right? Everything that we call ourself and other is actually part of this process, this unfolding process. An unfolding process in which, the beauty of which is that there is actually uniqueness in each moment. So all of us are these unique manifestations of life, 
you know, as are the crows and the flowers and the piglets and everything. You know. So everything's appearing right now just as it is, and the next moment is different. The next moment is different. No one ever takes birth, will take birth on earth again who's exactly got the talents and strengths and uh, qualities and looks and smells and everything that you do. And this is true of every other individual that you'll meet, too. And each of those individuals is actually this stream of constantly changing processes. So life is actually like this kaleidoscope, shifting, 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 shifting. And the more that we're actually able to pay attention, we can tune into that and sense actually not fragmentation, but actually some sense of wholeness of it all. But this is difficult for us to do. So it's hard for us to be with everything that arises. It's not our habit to do that. So partly we're training ourselves to come back again, again and again, to the present moment, to tune in, and practice being with different types of experience. The more we're able to tune into this, the more we can actually see through our own direct experience all of these things I'm describing about the ephemeral quality of life, about the uniqueness, and about how there actually is nothing to hold on to which makes seeking happiness in the realm of sense experience a futile undertaking. So what we're practicing here is actually trainings in the precepts, in the ethical conduct, whether or not every moment is intentionally meant to do that. So for example, when we're doing the walking practice, or even sitting practice when we're with our breath. We're actually practicing inhabiting our body in a kind and present way. So carefully and thoroughly inhabiting yourself as a human being. And as you're able to do that more and more, then naturally you will tend to follow the precept of non-harming. So it'll feel like, oh, to, to kill another living being is the same as the pain of you know, cutting my own arm like that. Right? Similarly with understanding of sexuality, being able to be present and to feel both the strength of that force, uh, to respect that, but also to know what is the possible damage that can be done from that, the harm that can be done from that. Also becoming aware of the mind. So inhabiting the mind and understanding what is it that leads towards happiness? What is it that leads towards suffering? So in the realm of harming is being aware of when the impulse for aggression, for hatred, for violence arises, as it does in most human beings at some time or another. But then recognizing that for what it is, which is this obscuration that comes from this false sense of here's me, here's the other, and I need to knock them out. With the training around taking what's not offered, it's around grasping after objects. 
So again, we, when this, this sense arises, there's this sense of permanence, like here's me and here's the thing I want. Uh, and I want to get that. I need that to have that. And then kind of an obsession can arise, like I have to have that, whether or not that's quote-unquote mine. Now the beautiful thing about retreat, as I mentioned, is that it's like a lab in which you can see all of this play out in uh, great and sometimes ridiculous and excruciating detail. Sometimes because you've removed a lot of the other complicating factors, and so then you just get to see in stark relief uh, the mind and its machinations laid bare. So, for example, you might uh, notice yourself coveting something that in ordinary life would seem a little bit ridiculous, like somebody's water bottle, or somebody's shoe, or uh, maybe some food someone has, or their sitting cushion, or something like that, right? And uh, in ordinarily that uh, tendency of mind might be actually applied to much greater and more grandiose objects so that you think it's normal and fine. In fact, actually, the society and culture, and American culture, kind of encourages us to have this sense of acquisitiveness, right? It's like, oh, you should constantly wanting a new car and a better car, and that will tell you who you are, and that will make you a powerful and uh, good-looking person or valuable or something like that. So, but here in retreat, there's no cars to buy, so then it becomes... Uh, kind of throttled down to water bottles and shoes and bananas and, you know, (laughs) stuff like that, right? Uh, So, you know, pay attention. This is actually a very interesting place to notice and to practice um, the mind uh, uh, grasping after something that even otherwise would seem, like, ridiculous. Um, But pay attention. Pay attention to the movement of mind, you know, uh, see the suffering that it causes, Notice the solidity that arises in those situations, right? And how maybe before there was just this flow of experience, then suddenly it's like me and the last banana or something, you know? It just becomes like very solid. So here we uh, come into connection with the uh, dimension of truthfulness too. Which is that a lot of the practice has to do with really trying to be extremely honest with yourself about what is actually going on in your experience. So when I uh, practice and you know, in, in life in general also, I try to take a little pact with myself to be as honest with I, myself as I can about what is actually happening. So what the feelings are that are happening, what is the thoughts that are happening, what are the body sensations happening, Regardless of whether you would want to tell someone about it later, or, uh, you know, you want someone else to see this, or anything, at least being very honest with yourself about what's actually happening in your experience. So we spend a lot of the time uh, dodging our experience, resisting what is actually true, what is actually happening. We don't always notice this because we do it so often. So uh, you could say this is like the entirety of your experience is this piece of paper, right? So this is like 
what might arise in your body, what might arise in your mind, what might arise in your emotional life. And through our um, life, our conditioning and so on, we start to develop different ideas about what it is and isn't okay. And maybe we come from birth with some sense of what is and isn't okay. So, for example, it's like, oh, I shouldn't feel anger. Anger is not good. So then we have to actually push that away anytime there's anger. So we don't get to feel that. We have to push that away. Oh, I shouldn't feel sadness. So I push that away. I don't like to have bad memories. So I push that away. I don't want to have body pain. So push that away. I don't like to feel jealous. I'm, I'm not a jealous person. I'm a good person. I'm a spiritual person, right? <laughs> so then you push that away, right? And so on. So you see how this happens. And for each of us, it may be something different, right? <coughs> so some, you know, men might have been conditioned like, oh, you can't cry. You know, if you're really a man, you can't cry. Or some women must be conditioned like, uh, you can't get angry at people. You know, that's not ladylike or something, right? So we all have sort of our own rules about that. And then we get to live in this tiny, crunched-up little package here, right? So with the mindfulness practice, slowly we are allowing this to unfurl. So relaxing, trying to pay attention to, trying to be honest with ourselves. But what is actually the truth of our own experience? And then we get to live in this whole space. And a lot of what we might find as we do this exploration is actually not what seems like good news. So I will admit that to you. So the joke about insight practice is that you get a lot of insights, and in the beginning a lot of it is like bad news insights. So it's like, oh, wow, I'm still caught up on that thing that happened 10 years ago. Or, oh, my my back actually still does hurt. Or like, wow, I actually uh, am kind of greedy. I didn't think I was, or I don't want to think I am, right? Of course, there's also beautiful things, and some people have resistance to the beautiful things, too. Some people feel like, oh, I shouldn't feel joy, or, you know, something like that, right? So notice whatever it is, and resistance and noticing the resistance is all part of this process. But in, of course, in aligning yourself more and more with the truth, a helpful tool is connecting with the truth, you know, becoming intimate with what's actually happening. So you just do your best with that, you know, and each time that you sit and you walk and is an opportunity to just connect with that, with clarity, uh, with honesty, and with courage. So uh, recently on this um, retreat, I had this experience of this where, uh, this was yesterday, that, uh, so Andrea, you might not know, is actually a connoisseur of pens. She has very nice pens. I've discovered this on this retreat, and um, then, you know, we have a little office, and then um, uh, I was taking notes and stuff with this, um, this pen. I was like, wow, this is a great pen, Andrea. This is really a nice pen, right? It's like flows so smoothly, you know. I would write books if I had this pen. But it's really, you know? And um, she says, yeah, I like this pen, et cetera. And then um, there was some point at which there was some uh, sort of kerfuffle that happened. I took the pen somewhere to write something, and then... Um, uh, and then later on, Andrea said, um, hey, did you take my pen? Right. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know, I don't think so. Is it the purple one? She says, no, the purple one's here, the other one. <laughs> I was like, oh, did I take the pen? I don't know, you know. 
So I, I thought, oh, wow, did I, did I klepto Andrea's pen because I liked it so much? You know, I didn't, I didn't intentionally uh, think that I took the pen, right? But I did a- admire the pen, right? Was there some moment in which I actually uh, took the pen? So I actually have found the pen among my possessions, so here I'm returning it to Andrea, in fact. So, yeah. <laughs> so, this is the exciting life of Dharma teachers, right? <laughs> So it's good to pay attention to all of this. You know, I'd like, I don't know, is there a moment in which uh, I was unmindful, in which I liked the pen and I grasped the pen? Or, uh, you know, probably more likely I just spaced out during the activities of our kerfuffle and pocketed the pen, you know? Um, because I think I would have noticed that moment of the acquisitiveness in that. Um, but it's good to notice. And then it also is good to notice and actually acknowledge. Now, you don't have to acknowledge all publicly like I just did, you know? But, uh, uh, but it's good to acknowledge, it's good to... Uh, <laughs> Uh, sort of recognize like your own um, wrongdoing in some way, right? And not with a flagellation kind of way, like self-flagellating, but like, oh, look, like, oh, this is a moment, this is something I could learn from, you know? And actually be humbled by the power of these forces of greed, of hatred, you know? Like they're very strong habits, very strong habits. And until we're completely enlightened and these are completely uprooted from our minds and hearts, you know, they emerge now and then. And if we're not mindful in different moments, you know, they will rule you, like they will own you, right? Some of you may have noticed as you sit that um, you actually have different memories come up, right, from things in the past. And if you pay attention to what these memories are, a lot of them are memories, I think, of times when there actually was some kind of um, pain caused to us or we actually caused pain to someone else. Uh, and oftentimes it's around some dimension of um, ethical conduct, you know, whether large or small. So this is evidence actually of the teaching of uh, karma, of cause and effect. You know? that like everything that we do, everything that we say, it doesn't just disappear, like poof, it's gone. I remember um, the first time I sat a long retreat, a three-month retreat, um, and this was also soon after I started practicing in college, and um, I had all these memories coming up of basically everything I'd ever done wrong, it seemed like, in my life, including like, you know, in fifth grade, I said something mean to a girl, and it came up, and it was so painful to feel that, you know. Like we get much more sensitive here as we quiet down, and I'm just really feeling the pain of that. And then likewise, feeling all the hurtful things that people had done to me that I might not have been able to be totally present with in that moment. Right? So we're actually very sensitive beings as, uh, as human beings. It's very, very helpful for us to uh, pay attention for our own sake and for the sake of others. So Buddha gave a lot of teachings around this for lay people. And... Uh, I actually find that they're less emphasized in the teachings here in the uh, West than uh, the teachings uh, of the Dharma uh, in Asia, when I've practiced and studied in Sri Lanka and places like that. And I don't know if that's some uh, concern about, you know, alienating people by sounding too preachy or something like that. but the Buddha gives a lot of strong teachings around this, so I thought I'd share a little bit with you, too. 
So the story of the Buddha is that you know he was a, a wealthy, uh, well-off guy, but he had this kind of existential, uh, existential angst come over him. He wanted to understand right uh, life and death and suffering. So he uh, he was actually married and he had a small son named Rahula, but he actually left them in the middle of the night and went off to become a spiritual seeker, an aspirant. And at that time in uh, northern India, 2,600 years ago, it was a time of a lot of different spiritual practice. So it was actually kind of like how Silicon Valley is now for technology. You know, so now it's like all these startups going on and different tech things, you know, being created all the time and billion dollar this that right. So it was like this actually with spiritual practice. There were all different people uh, who were engaged in uh, various different spiritual pursuits developing different spiritual technologies, if you will, so different types of meditation, contemplation, right? And you could go and sort of join that startup and join that startup and, you know, try them out. So Buddha went and he joined some, this one, and then he joined that one, and then eventually he started his own, right? And uh, he found his own way to uh, enlightenment, and we'll give more details in some of the story as we go along in the retreat. Uh, And then he started to teach. And by this point, this is like, uh, you know, six or seven years later, um, so his son has actually grown up, uh, and he's a little boy. And the first time that um, his wife uh, sees him, she says to his son, uh, that man there is your father, that monk there is your father, right? So go and ask him for your inheritance. So she might have been a little bit bitter, maybe, that he (laughs) (laughs) left, right? so he goes and innocently asks, and, she, and he says, well, here's your inheritance, is the Dharma, so ordain him, right? So then actually the little boy gets ordained and joins um, the order of, uh, of monastics. So this was not exactly what the wife had in mind, right, uh, maybe. And uh, actually later Buddha's father um, asked him to promise not to ordain uh, children or anyone under 20 without permission of the parents because it's actually very painful for the parents to have the children leave and you know But in this case it also is his son and so there's various um, Parts of the teaching in which he's actually teaching his son Rahula and Rahula is like a small boy um, So he teaches uh, very well to give advice to people according to their uh, ability and understanding right? So here's one um, sutta that he t- he's, one teaching he gives to Rahula around uh, ethics. So he tells him that uh, whenever you do an action with the body, it should be done, Rahula, only after repeated reflection. An action by speech should only be done after repeated reflection. Even an action of the mind should be done after repeated reflection. When you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect on this thus. Would this action lead to my own affliction, or the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome action, with painful consequences, with painful results? Basically, if you know this to be true, then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. But if you reflect and understand this would not cause this to happen, then you may do such action. So he's saying first, before you do an action, to reflect. Then he goes through the same thing with while you're doing an action. So while you're doing an action with the body, Rahula, you should reflect on this action. Does this action with the body lead to my own affliction, the affliction of others, or the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome action with painful consequences, with painful results? 
when you reflect, if you know that this is true, then you should stop doing it. So even mid-action, if you can catch that this is a problem, you should stop doing it. And then even after you've done an action, so after you've done an action, Rahula, you should reflect upon that same action thus. Does this lead to my own affliction? Uh, has it, will it lead to the affliction of others or the affliction of both? Was it an unwholesome action with painful consequences? Right. And if you have done that, then you should confess such an action. Basically, in this case, he's a monk, so he says to the teacher and so on, and basically make amends in some way. Right. And you should basically take a resolve for restraint for the future around this particular action. But if your action has actually passed all of these three tests, so before the action, during the action, after the action, then you can actually take joy. You can abide happy and glad that your wholesome bodily action has pleasant consequences, pleasant results. And then he goes through this whole same thing with speech. So before you're gonna say something, you should reflect like, oh, okay, is this uh, a positive? Is this wholesome? Is this going to lead to the affliction of myself or others or both? And I'll say that even that distinction, you know, that we have, that his recommendation is reflect, like self, others, both, reflects that we're usually stuck in this kind of duality of self and other, right? Because the truth is, if you you could reflect just blanketly, is this a (laughs) harmful action, right? But because we're usually caught in this perspective of separation, then it's like, okay, A, B, A plus B, you know, do all this like that. Now, advanced practice is actually, he says, about uh, even for thought, right? So this is, where, uh, this is where you might have developed to the level in which you actually feel like you have the ability to attend to thought like this. Like, oh, should I keep thinking this thought, right? Should this thought continue? Because, of course, thought is the basis of then speech, right? Usually it arises as thought before it comes out of your mouth. And then usually something arises in the mind as an intention before it moves into the body, right? So there are different levels of, of how that comes out. But we sort of catch it wherever we can, basically. You know, catch it wherever you can and pay attention and work with it. So in the same sutta, he also talks to Rahula um, specifically about um, lying, about truthfulness. And uh, you know, Rahula is a little boy, so he comes, he sits down with him, and then he, uh, the Buddha... Uh, brings a vessel to Rahula with some water in it. And he asks Rahula, um, well, here, I'll have to drink this water in order to make this. There's a vessel with a little water, so. Okay, so he says, see this vessel with a little bit of water in it? Rahula says, yes, venerable sir. He says, even so, Rahula, is the recluse ship of one who is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So someone who is an aspirant in the spiritual life, who likes to live a life of integrity, uh, but who's actually not afraid to tell a lie on purpose. So not accidentally, right? But on purpose. Like that's, that is what it's worth, basically, saying. So then he throws away the water. So if we're outside, I throw it away. I'll drink it now. Oh, okay, thank you. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. So he throws it away when he says, Rahula, do you see even that little water that was thrown away? Yes, sir. Even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have thrown away their reckless ship. Thrown it away. And then he turns the water vessel upside down. And he says, Rahula, do you see this water vessel turned upside down? Yes, venerable sir. Even so, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have turned their reckless ship upside down. 
He's like really hammering on this point, right? <laughs> Don't tell a deliberate lie. Like this is a main thing, right? And then he turns it right way up and he asks them, do you see this hollow, empty water vessel? Yes, sir. Even so, hollow and empty is the recluse ship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. Right? So he likes to, to make sure you get the point with this, right? <laughs> and um, <clears throat> he says this in a number of, number of different ways. And he says, uh, you know, w- when one is not ashamed to, telibra- to, to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train yourself thus. I will not utter a falsehood, even as a joke. So this is, this is very significant, because this is not commonly accepted in modern society. So he's saying, even if you're just trying to be funny, uh, you should not say something uh, that is not true uh, as a joke. Right? Now, this is a high standard, granted, and um, it's not you know, necessarily what's socially... Uh, socially, it's considered okay if you tell tell something that's not true, and then you're like just kidding, right? But it makes sense. Like if you are actually trying to be a person of integrity and align yourself with the truth, you know, high bar standard is just like stick to the truth as much as possible, right? Be someone of your word. And I notice this um, both for myself, and I also notice this sometimes um, with others, like. Uh, I noticed once, one time when I was um, sitting in a Dharma talk that the teacher actually uh, said something. I think that the manager had come up and given a, um, given a talk about like the logistics of the retreat. And it was a long list, kind of like what we did, you know, first night. And it's like, here's the mountain lions, and here's the bathroom, and here's this, right, all these things. And then the teacher came up and said, um, just very lightly, I think, to, with no bad intention, but was like, okay, and now we're going to have a quiz about it. And then said, no, just kidding, right. And then went into the regular stuff. And I noticed what it did for me uh, in that moment. Like, uh, I was just sort of very earnestly listening to the teacher. And then suddenly it was like, oh, okay. Just very slightly like, oh, okay. Anything that that comes from that chair, I have to be like ready. Like, oh, maybe it's going to be a just kidding or something, right? And the teacher was a great teacher. Nothing else came out of their mouth that was a lie or, you know, everything else was right on. But... There was something that sort of threw me off just in that moment a little bit that made me realize, like, oh, yeah, that has an effect. And we notice it sometimes more when we're on the receiving side, right, than when we're on the giving side. But uh, for me, that made me resolve very strongly, particularly strongly, of course, when I'm here in the, the Dharma seat, which is a, uh, a privilege and um, an honor to be able to share the Dharma like this. Like, that is something that I will never do, or will resolve to try never to do. I'm not perfect, I should say, but... So I just offer that for your consideration, too, around truthfulness. Um, You know, it's a much higher bar than what is normally held in uh, society. But, uh, you know, if you're actually an aspirant to the truth, it makes sense. You know, align yourself as much as possible with the truth. And with all of these different dimensions of integrity, with truthfulness, the other piece of it is, like, uh, we will uh, make mistakes, right? We will certainly make mistakes, right? I might even make that very mistake that I just told you that I resolved not to make, right? Sometime in this week. And then it's like, okay, learn from that then. You know, be humbled, first of all, again, say by the power of delusion, by the power of uh, what these forces and that play out unconsciously. And then learn from that. You know, try to pay attention to like, what's the result in my own mind and heart? What's the result uh, on other people? 
and then allow your sensitivity and your awareness to what the impact has been to actually uh, have you uh, resolve to do better the next time. So taking these as teachings of uh, trainings, so they're trainings that will guide us on our path towards happiness and towards harmony. There are helpful guidelines that the Buddha laid out for us to help us to be able to see the way things really are, so to help us to be able to uh, harmonize our own understanding, our own mind-body system, to kind of true us up, right, to live uh, in happiness and in peace. So we have a great opportunity here on retreat uh, to spend our days primarily focused on this endeavor of actually being honest with ourselves, living in a community of people uh, who are doing their best to follow these uh, guidelines around uh, ethics and precepts. And that allows us to drop into experience and to see into with courage the way that things really are. So I'm happy that we have many more days together to explore this. You can pay attention to your own experience in this way. Pay attention to the impact that this has on others. And actually also you can pay attention in the world, even in the world of you know, farm animals and uh, birds and nature. You know. uh, so like, what does it seem like is going on? What is the impact for you of seeing different things happening? Yeah. It's interesting, even with different um, animals, they seem, do seem to have these different qualities, various different qualities and stuff, right? Um, so uh, Andrew and I went over to see the piglets uh, a little bit ago, and then um, as we entered this pen, you know, there was a bunch of chickens there. And this one chicken just like started booking headlong towards us. Right? And I was like, he is not coming right at us like that. Like, <laughs> he's like, yes, he is. <laughs> And I think he thought we might be feeding him, and he was going to get there first. You know? <laughs> he was like, you know, determined uh, to do that. It's like, oh, look, he had different personality. And the other chickens, some of them are burrowed in the ground. Some of them, are, you know, different things like that. Right? So you don't need to like project all things on you know animals. But it's interesting to see, like, yeah, there are these different uh, like qualities of uh, you know even a mind in the chicken that then affects action, right? And it plays out in these different ways, right? Uh, so you can see this in animals, you can see this in people, you know. You can see it even in little babies, like they act differently from each other, right? So here's this great opportunity when we're actually training, able to train ourselves in the ways that are actually the most helpful, you know. Otherwise we're just like playing out our, you know, chicken nature or whatever, you know. <laughs> so actually pay attention to like, well, what is actually helpful, what is harmful, you know, what's causing suffering, what's leading to happiness, what's causing peace, uh, what's causing chaos. So I offer those reflections for you this afternoon. So thank you for your attention.